Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, are Canadians facing greedflation? Governments should play a role in stopping greed from driving up the cost of food. The House unanimously supports an NDP motion recognizing corporate greed as an inflation driver. It comes as major grocery players freeze some prices. But should the government take action against rising prices? MPs are here and they're ready to debate that in moments. Then, Ottawa underprepared and overwhelmed. The Emergencies Act inquiry hears the Ford government initially turned down the city's call for help as Ottawa convoy took hold in the city. We've got the latest from the national investigation. Plus, pressuring Putin. I believe that uh, it is much harder to kill someone when the entire world is watching. We sit down with the wife of a Russian dissident who remains imprisoned by Putin's regime. That as Ottawa imposes new sanctions to increase pressure for his release. But are Canada's sanctions biting? This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. I would really encourage all Canadian companies uh, to take a Team Canada approach to the challenge of the cost of living. Well, forget clipping coupons. How about freezing food prices to fight inflation at the grocery store? Well, that's what Loblaws is doing on its no-name products starting today running all the way until the end of January 23rd. But it's unclear how much the move will save Canadians, with another grocery train today, Metro, releasing a statement saying, quote, in an industry, it is an industry practice to have a price freeze from November 1st to February 5th for all private label and national brand grocery products. So Metro says it will have a price freeze in place too. But the NDP motion taking aim at grocery giants and says that and the profits they've been making got unanimous support today in the House. That motion calls on the government to recognize corporate greed as a driver of inflation. Here's part of the motion. It wants the government to close loopholes that help big grocery stores avoid taxes, increase penalties for price fixing, and support a Commons Committee's investigation of food prices. It comes as grocery prices have jumped 10.8% compared to last year, and a Bank of Canada survey shows that Canadians place the blame on price gouging and government spending. So, what will it take to contain the cost of putting food on the table? Let's find out. Joining me right now are Liberal National Revenue Parliamentary Secretary Peter Francis Thank you for joining me. Conservative Deputy Leader Melissa Lansman, NDP. Our agriculture and food critic Alistair McGregor also here. Thank you both for being here. Welcome, Mr. Franciscanis. Let's start with you. I wanted to know, in that survey, Bank of Canada says that four out of five Canadians say that they've changed their shopping habits because of inflation. So what does your government have to say to Canadians in the face of that? And thank you for having me, Mike. It's good to be here. I would simply look at the situation and be honest with Canadians. We hear what they're going through. We see what they're going through. I think it is a reality that Canada is facing, every democracy is facing. Uh, the results are, are real for people. The factors that are contributing to the cause of inflation are almost entirely external, but we have a responsibility as a government to respond. 
And so what's that response then? Canadians want to know. They're having trouble putting food on sure, the table. Sure, of course. You've seen some of that already, the doubling of the GST credits for six months. Uh, I very much, it's great to see the Conservatives uh, support that eventually. They needed some encouraging, but they eventually got there. Uh, it would be great to see further support from them. I know we have the NDP's support on support for rent. Uh, the $500 payment that we've talked about, and dental care. There's kids in this country uh, that uh, whose parents cannot afford to take them to the dentist. That is unacceptable. In the grand scheme, uh, that does help. Of course, there's always going to be a need to to, to look at the situation mm -hmm. and see what else we can we can do. But uh, we do have a situation now that is real, that is facing the country, and the government is responding in this way. And not to mention childcare, which is uh, something that the government has moved forward with. To, okay, to the point of responding more, I'll get to you in a second, Ms. Lanceman, but Mr. McGregor, Mr. McGregor, is your motion that got unanimous support today um, asking, you know, so big, because of the big corporate profits, you're saying that grocery companies are making, um, Metro calls it standard, standard practice now to have that price freeze in place. So is Loblaws just doing the bare minimum here and is that enough? I find it very remarkable and interesting that the announcement they made this morning happened on the exact same day a House of Commons vote was scheduled on this very subject. And, you know, going to the motion and the vote today, I'm very happy to see my Liberal colleagues, my Conservative colleagues, the Bloc Québécois, everyone in the House join the NDP's leadership on this issue and finally recognize that profit-driven inflation is a major pressure. There are two truths that Canadians can see right now. They can see the increasing price of foods week in, week out, as they're struggling to make those choices about the kind of good quality food they want to put on the table for their families. And they can also see the record net profits that the large grocery chains are making. These two truths exist simultaneously, and I believe a parliamentary investigation is warranted. I'm glad to see that my colleagues have not only supported my motion at committee, but also in the House of Commons. It shows that parliamentarians are finally showing leadership on this issue and taking it with the seriousness that Canadians expect. Ms. Lanceman, I want to ask you, what more should grocery stores be doing to help Canadians fight inflation? Because if now we're saying, and I understand, and I just wanted a little comment on Mr. McGregor, great to take a victory lap, but it's, it sounds like this is what they do all the time. But I was going to ask Ms. Ms. Lanceman, what more can be done by grocery stores and what more can parliamentarians do to push them to do more here? It's what more the government can do. We've been The leader of the opposition, the current leader, has been talking about inflation for two years. We have 40-year highs in inflation. And you cannot simultaneously tell Canadians that you hear them, that you feel their pain, and raise taxes on them. And that's a tripling of the carbon tax. That's the raising of uh, paycheck taxes on, uh, on January 1st. You can't fuel the fire of inflation while claiming that it is a problem for Canadians that you are taking care of. We've heard them say that for the first time this summer, uh, and I'm glad that they're that they're talking about it, but they're still not doing anything, because we're going to see so a tripling... What tri uh, we, well, cut the carbon tax, first of all, because yeah. that's the price of... Uh, that's what's driving the price of food up. It's driving the price of, uh, of getting goods across the country up, the price of gasoline, the price of home heating. It is crunching Canadians with absolute consumer debt, and you're seeing, uh, you're seeing food prices. Of the average family of four is paying $1,200 more, and their solution last minute at the end of the summer was to give them $467. The, the cost of inflation and the inflationary pressure that they are spending money on, that they are adding to uh, into the debt, is evaporating those savings, and Canadians are starting to notice. feels like you want to get in here, but just, uh, as, just before you do, I wanted to ask you, because Ms. Freeland, uh, the, the finance minister, Christopher Freeland, had a speech today. She was telling, saying that the government has a plan to secure a better future for Canada. It will be shared in the fall economic st uh, statement. 
I mean, I'm going to give you the opportunity. It'd be great to give us a preview right now. So what will that look like? Well, I think you heard Minister Freeland's speech, uh, looking at and building on what she uh, shared in Washington just a few days ago. Mm -hmm. We have enormous potential as a country. We have uh, wonderful natural resources, uh, incredible agricultural land. All of that can be harnessed and put forward in a meaningful economic way, and I think you're going to see the government continue to do that and build upon gains that have already been made uh, in the green sector, hydrogen, uh, green hydrogen in particular, uh, but all sorts of, I mean, electric vehicles, uh, batteries as well. Uh, this is something, and Southern Ontario has seen huge investments in this regard. So does that, does that help Canadians pay for groceries now? I think we have to set the economic foundation in order to secure the future. As for right now, what Ms. Lanceman just made clear is that if the Conservatives were in office right now, gone is carbon pricing. In other words, gone is the $186.25 that went into Canadians, or Ontarians rather, bank accounts just a few days ago. Uh, gone is any serious focus on ensuring uh, when times are bad, that the government is there for people. Uh, they call employment insurance attacks. They call CPP attacks. I'm sorry, that is making sure that Canadians are taken care of when times are difficult. Uh, this is the party of austerity that continues to speak in those terms. It's not an approach that I think speaks to the need at the moment. Ms. Lanceman, what do you want to see in the fall economic statement to help Canadians with the cost of living? I think we said it every single day in the House. We want them to stop raising the carbon tax. We want them to stop tripling the carbon tax. They started at $30. It went to $40. It's $50. It's they haven't reduced emissions, and it will go to $170. And by we ask 2030. All, by 2030. We, and we ask all the time, what, what is the price that it needs to be at to actually do something for the environment? They don't have an environment plan. They have a tax plan. And they don't have a plan for Canadians to put food on the table. That's what we're asking for. And instead, they're, they're adding, uh, adding additional inflationary spending uh, to, our, uh, to our budget, and I expect we'll probably see more more of that in the fall economic statement. They say they care about Canadians and they do the exact opposite. So just, Mr. McGregor, I would let you get in here. I mean, they're talking all about, you know, what they do and don't want to see in the fall economic statement while we're also talking about your motion. Mm -hmm. How do the two play together? Well, you know, just uh, on the talk on carbon pricing, I think there's two key elements that are missing from this conversation that both the Liberals and the Conservatives avoid talking about. Number one, if you're looking at the high cost of fuel prices and you're not talking about the record profits of oil and gas companies, you're doing a disservice to Canadians. Secondly, no one is talking about the inflationary pressures of climate change itself. My province of BC last year went through wildfires and then an atmospheric river months apart. We spent billions of dollars trying to clean up for those events. We know that farmers in the prairie are facing droughts. We just had a hurricane hit Nova Scotia. These are going to have real tax consequences for our population. So if we're not talking about those two issues and just looking short-term pain right now, then we're doing a real disservice to Canadians because these events are going to get worse and they're going to cost more the longer we avoid the problem. Before we go on, Loblaws just, just sent us a new statement saying um, that price freezing is absolutely not typical. They've implemented this as one of the many ways to help customers combat inflationary pressures when shopping for groceries. That just in. Uh, but I guess going forward, how do we all get together now in this committee that you know was in Mr. McGregor's um, bill to actually fight now and do this in front of committee and make sure that everybody's pooling their resources together? Start with you. If, if you can do this in 15 seconds or less, then we'll get everybody in another shot. Just to clarify, as carbon pricing goes up, so too does the rebate. That is That needs to be made very, very clear. 
and there's no tripling of the carbon price. This is, the math is just not there. As far as Mr. McGregor's motion, I voted for it because I think it deserves to be explored. However, I think there's much more complex causes to the issue of inflation in general and food inflation in particular. I think you're seeing the government uh, listen to Canadians and act. Of course, it remains a very difficult time. I, I don't want to underemphasize that at all. But uh, because of actions taken by this government, we have the lowest debt in the, G in the G7, we have the lowest deficit in the G7, and our economy looks very good going forward. Try it in 15 seconds or less, if you can, to work together we on have, this. We have the highest interest rates in the G7, and we're the only ones in the G7 who has, have raised our, our carbon pricing during this 40-year high inflation. I'd like to see this uh, study, but at the, at the core of it, the government needs to act, and it needs to act in the best interest of Canadians who are having trouble putting food on the table. We're unfortunately going to have to leave it there. I think your motion speaks for its felt, it's, it's, it's itself, Mr. McGregor, but we'll have you guys back again. Really appreciate it, Mr. Franciscatis, Ms. Lansman, Mr. McGregor, thank you again for being here. I appreciate that. Coming up, it's now day three of the Emergencies Act inquiry. So did today's testimony from Ottawa City Manager shed more light on the situation, or did it muddy the waters even further? CTV's Annie Bergeron-Oliver joins us next on Power Play. The first full week of testimony at the inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act kicked off today. The commission heard from Ottawa City Manager Steve Kanellakis, who said then-Ontario Solicitor General Sylvia Jones called the convoy a matter for enforcement, not the province. Premier Doug Ford shared a different take today at an event with the Prime Minister. Take a look at this. Solicitor General at the time it was Sylvia Jones, um, in a different portfolio now, ministry now, but uh, she made it clear um, my recollection that this was a law enforcement matter. It wasn't for um, elected officials uh, to be getting involved in that. I stood shoulder to shoulder with the, the Prime Minister. Uh, the, these uh, folks were, were, you know, camping out, everything from whirlpools, disrupting downtown, disrupting the lives of the people of Ottawa. Uh, we've worked collaboratively with, with the Mayor and the, the, the Prime Minister. Ottawa Mayor um, Jim Watson's Chief of Staff testimony today began after Steve Kanellakis's CTV National uh, News Parliamentary Reporter Annie Bergeron-Oliver has more. Annie, thank you so much for being with us right now. Let's start with Mr. Kanellakis's comments about the lack of provincial support. What did he have to say? Essentially, he said that the province just wasn't there for the city of Ottawa at first, that there were repeated uh, requests for assistance, that, as you mentioned in that clip, that Sylvia Jones, the Solicitor General at the time in Ontario, said that they weren't going to provide the help at that point, that this was a law enforcement issue that should be dealt through the police and not political. So, it, you know, based on the testimony, it sort of seemed like the province at the beginning of this thought that this was more of a small localized protest. You mentioned that the chief of staff for Jim Watson, the mayor, just finished testifying. And one of the things he said was that, you know, about a week and a half in, Mayor Watson's office wrote a strongly worded letter kind of explaining the protest test and what it was to the premier's office. And Mayor Watson's chief of staff just finished saying that he thinks that that letter in mid, you know, the second week of February made a real difference in trying to shift the narrative of the premier's office from thinking that this was just 
protest against the federal government to realizing that there were economic and other consequences. It's also interesting because he points out um, that there was this trilateral meeting that on multiple occasions Doug Ford was not a part of, although others were. And again, the chief of staff to Mayor Watson just finished saying that it seems like the premier's office thought that that meeting was a little bit too political. And in one of the notes even, uh, back from the premier's office to the city of Ottawa, the province said that, you know, in that sort of first week of February, that they were too busy dealing with the ambassador bridge blockade, that that was really the priority, and that all Ottawa needed to deal with its own resources. And in some cases, in both of these testimonies, we heard that the uh, province had some issues with how Ottawa was being led and that they had some concerns that additional resources may not really lead to much of a difference at all. And I've got just about a minute left. We also heard about this warning from actually hotels. They were hearing that protesters were planning to stay for the long haul. What, what are the details there? So a few days before the protesters arrived here in Ottawa, the Hotel Association sent a letter that was delivered to Ottawa police and city officials that essentially stated that protesters were calling thousands of them and seeking to block rooms uh, for up to a month. Now, it's interesting because that information was passed to police, but the question is, did police really pay attention to it? Today, Kanalakis said that, you know, the city of Ottawa does have the ability to block off roads like they do for major events, but they didn't because in this case, police said it wasn't necessary and the city couldn't close off these roads without the assistance of police. Police had a plan. They, you know, did they take this advice from the Hotel Association into consideration? The advice from police to the city of Ottawa, as we heard from Kanalakis today, was that this protest would be done by the weekend and the stragglers would be gone by Wednesday. We know that that's not the case. And, and basically from hearing Kanalakis today, he said that if it had only lasted the weekend, that this protest would have been fairly insignificant. People wouldn't have talked about it, but it didn't and it didn't end and it kept going. And it seems like the longer that this went on, the more that the confidence that the city had in the police really just started evaporating. Incredible. Thanks for this, Annie. Really appreciate it. That's CTV National News parliamentary reporter Annie Bergeron Oliver. Well, the Prime Minister made a major announcement today with tech giant Nokia. The company is expanding its facility in Ottawa with the help of the federal and provincial governments. The $340 million investment will help Nokia tear down its current hub and build a brand new 26-acre research and development centre. Regardless of the contributions of the provincial government, of the federal government, of the municipal government being partners, that's not why Peck is here today. Peck is here today because he is recognizing the extraordinary contribution of the workers here at this facility. Uh, you know, researchers, scientists, uh, engineers here at Nokia, uh, here in Canada, here across Canada, uh, who have contributed extraordinarily, not just to the growth we've seen in the past, but who are building the future, not just of this region, not just of this country, not just of the world. And they are the reason you are here, and we are so grateful that you recognize that. Construction on the project will begin next year and is expected to be completed in 2026. Well, coming up, fighting for her husband and her people. The wife of a jailed Russian opposition politician is in Ottawa pressing Canada to increase sanctions on the Kremlin. How far is she willing to go to stop Putin and his regime? The answer is next on Power Play.
The city of Kyiv awoke to kamikaze drone strikes this morning, leaving at least four dead. It's just the latest escalation by Russia in response to the October 8th Crimean Kerch bridge blasts. Until this point, Russian airstrikes on Kyiv have been carried out mostly with missiles. A Russian activist is in Ottawa today leading the charge for the West to impose more sanctions against Putin's government. Evgenia Karamutsa's husband, Vladimir, has been a vocal critic of Putin's war. He's also a Russian opposition politician who was jailed by the Kremlin last April after being charged with treason and for allegedly spreading fake news about Russia's war in Ukraine. If that wasn't enough, he survived two poisoning attempts. Today, Evgenia Karamutsa is meeting with parliamentarians as Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie announced more sanctions targeting Russian propagandists and people who spread disinformation. So what role can Canada play in getting justice for her husband? Let's find out. Joining me now is Hermitage Capital Management CEO Bill Browder. He's also the architect of Magnitsky-style sanctions. Now, those sanctions aim to punish human rights abusers. Browder is a former business partner of Sergei Magnitsky. Magnitsky testified against Kremlin officials and subsequently died while in custody. Browder is also the author of the best-selling books about these sanctions called Red Notice and Freezing Order. Beside him here in studio is Evgenia Kara-Murza. She's the wife of Vladimir Kara-Murza, who is a Russian opposition politician and political prisoner. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for being here. First of all, I want to start with you, Evgenia. How is your husband doing? When is the last time you spoke with him? Thank you very much for offering me this opportunity to speak out on behalf of Vladimir mm -hmm. and all those oppressed in Russia. I, I haven't seen or talked to Vladimir since April when he was arrested in Moscow. And how, at that time, what did it sound like how he was doing? Uh, well, Vladimir is a fighter, has always been a fighter. Uh, he continued his work, refused to be silenced, despite two assassination attempts against him. Um, the first assassination attempt happened in 2015. He ended up in a coma with a multiple organ failure. He was lucky enough to survive. He got up and went back to Russia. The second attempt happened in 2017. Again, a coma, a multiple organ failure. But Vladimir uh, got up again and went back to Russia to continue his work. So, of course, he had to be there when uh, Putin launched this absolutely unjustified and horrendous war against Ukraine. Vladimir had to be where people, Russian people, were saying no to this war and were actively protesting. And Vladimir uh, has always identified himself as a Russian politician. For him, as a Russian politician, he believed he would not have the moral right to call on people to continue opposing the regime uh, if he himself were somewhere safe. So... Uh, he didn't really have any choice right. uh, but to go back and stand with these people. Amazing when you call him a fighter. I mean, evidence right there. He's also facing these charges, originally facing charges of fake, spreading fake news and high treason. Why these charges in particular? Because, I mean, there is a sentence here that could be upwards of 25 years in jail. Absolutely. Well, this is the essence of Putin's regime. Uh, there have been three charges against my husband. The first one for disseminating, as the Russian government calls it, fake information about the use of Russian armed forces in Ukraine. So basically for telling the truth about the atrocities committed by the Russian army on the territory of Ukraine and for denouncing these atrocities. Um, and the second charge uh, is for organizing an event in support of political prisoners 
at Moscow's Sakharov Center in October 2021. And so to these uh, two charges, uh, the charge, the accusation of high treason has recently been added. Mm -hmm. um, this accusation is based on three public speeches that Vladimir has made on different international platforms, talking about the illegitimate character of the recent constitutional reform in Russia that made Vladimir Putin basically a czar for life. Right. Uh, another speech uh, for talking about uh, mass political repression in the Russian Federation. And the third one about uh, the war, the censorship war. They basically... Uh, yet another war that Vladimir Putin launched in Russia in February of this year, targeting every single independent media outlet in the Russian Federation, thus preventing the Russian population from receiving independent, objective news about what the Russian army is doing in Ukraine. Serious charges. Also serious today, Mr. Browder, you, the two of you are here in Ottawa to call on the Canadian government to sanction very specific people. Um, those involved in the arrest? Why these people? Well, so we, we are doing what we can to support the um, Ukrainians fighting the Russians, mm -hmm. which is very important. But the other thing that we need to be doing is to support the few Russians that are brave enough uh, to stand up to Vladimir Putin. Right. And Vladimir Karamurza is one of these unbelievable, unimaginable brave Russians who, after, after two poisoning attempts that the Russians made to kill him, he went back to Russia after the war started to call Putin a murderer live on television on CNN, and an hour later he was arrested. And we need to do what we can to support people like him, to show the Russian government we care, people, care for people like him, and to show the Russians that they're not going to be abandoned if they stand up to Putin, because the only way we're going to get rid of Putin is by the Russians getting rid of Putin, and the only way that's going to happen is if the Russians feel strong enough to do that, and, and this is the least we can do. To, um, to show the Russians that we care. But this has been months since we've had this sort of a global crusade of sanctions against Russia. What will really make the difference here, especially in, in Vladimir's case, but specifically, is there any indication that these sanctions that the globe has uh, targeted against Russia, that they're making any difference at all? Oh, for sure, they're making a huge difference um, in, in every respect. I mean, Putin can't build tanks anymore because mm -hmm. of the sanctions. He's running out of money in, in all sorts of areas because of the sanctions. He's furious because of the sanctions. These, these sanctions make a big difference. We could have done a lot of sanctioning for 22 years and we didn't, which could have, been a, uh, which could have made Putin change his calculus. Now that he's started the war, we have a duty to starve him of resources, which the sanctions are doing. And we also have a duty to support Russian opposition, which is what these sanctions today are hopefully going to be all about. Evgenia, I was going to ask you, do you worry at all that the situation could get worse for your husband if, you know, when Canada does sanction these people? Could the situation become worse for him as a result of the sanctions? Well, he's, uh, he was already targeted for assassination twice and is now facing up to 24 years in high-security prison. Uh, you know, I believe that publicity is my only weapon uh, in this fight for human rights, for his release mm -hmm. in Russia, uh, I believe that uh, it is much harder to kill someone when the entire world is watching. So I'm going to do everything in my power. I'm going to do everything to find enough strength 
to stand up to this regime and continue Vladimir's work because I think that this will bring closer the downfall of the regime and when this vertical of power constructed in Russia by Vladimir Putin collapses, all political prisoners are going to be released. You say you're going to do everything in your power. How do you find the strength to continue on when you consider the situation that your husband's in right now? Um, well, that was really not a choice. I'm fighting for someone I love. I'm fighting for someone who's inspired me over the years, who's shown me what true patriotism is, what true bravery is, and I'm going to fight for him. This is the father of my three children. And the idea was for us to raise these children together. So I'm not leaving him uh, in a Russian prison. I'm going to fight for as long as it takes me. And I'm going to show Vladimir Putin and his regime that we will not be silenced, that we will not be intimidated, that we will push forward until the day he stands trial and is sent to prison to rot somewhere with all other perpetrators, with all other who have been aiding and abetting this regime in committing those atrocious crimes against the Russian population and now against the Ukrainian people. That kind of talk is kind of inspiring, Mr. Browder, I, I would think for you as well. When you consider, and you, we sort of take a look back at where we are right now, what we're seeing right now in Ukraine with Kyiv um, undergoing bombardment, what is that a sign of for you, of where this war is and the headspace of Vladimir Putin? Vladimir Putin started this war because he stole so much money from the Russian people he needed a distraction. And um, he needs to show everybody that there's a foreign enemy, so they, they're not mad at him, they're mad at a foreign enemy. And Vladimir Putin, um, in his own mind, can't lose this war. And so, and he's been losing this war. He's lost an enormous number of, of soldiers, lost enormous amount of equipment, and lost territory. And so Vladimir Putin is in a desperate situation right now, and that's what we're seeing with this indiscriminate bombing of civilians, of civilian infrastructure. And it shows that he's really feeling the pain, and we need to make him feel more pain. I appreciate you both being here. Thank you so much. Bill Browder, Evgeny Karamuza, thank you so much for taking the time and being here with us today. Thank you. And Canada's newest premier, Alberta's Danielle Smith, is facing criticism again today, this time for comments she made on April on Russia's war in Ukraine. I think the only answer for Ukraine is neutrality. So why would we be surprised if Russia is upset because Ukraine has nuclear weapons and has lied with the United States? Now, Smith made those comments on a live stream, and they were first reported by independent journalist Justin Ling, who also reported comments from the now premier that Link two reports criticized for promoting Russian disinformation. The Alberta NDP is calling on the premier to apologize. Up next, cursing a blue streak about the government's green plan. Environmentalist David Suzuki joins the show with more about his rant and the Liberals' record. Stay right there. Power Play is back after this. But all this bullshit about how you're trying to encourage the coming together to this beautiful land. What are we doing about this land? We're not doing the right things that will ensure tourism into the future. Your government, your government has failed to take climate seriously and to, that, to take the action that's needed. 
Well, that was environmentalist David Suzuki stealing the spotlight from a federal funding announcement in Vancouver this past weekend. Some would say putting a different spotlight on other things. Suzuki called out the government for its record on climate change, saying the feds have failed to take climate seriously. Tourism Minister Randy Boissonneau was there to tout his government's $1.2 million investment for B.C.'s tourism industry. Suzuki took over the mic after no reporters stepped in to ask questions. So why did he do it and how does he hope the government responds? Let's ask him right now. Joining me now is renowned scientist, broadcaster, author, activist David Suzuki. Thank you so much for being there. First question, what was it about the announcement that made you feel like it was time to speak out like that? Well, it was just an opportunity that came up. I happened to be there. I was waiting for, uh, for a flight to Victoria. I'm a big fan of uh, Harbour Air because they've electrified or are electrifying their fleet. When suddenly this press uh, conference was taking place, so I kind of stepped out to hear what he was saying. And it was the same old, same old, you know. I mean, the backdrop was mountains that were covered in smoke. You can see it right there. That's not normally Vancouver. And, you know, the fire season normally is ended by September. Here we are in the middle of October, and the tourism minister is coming in and saying, look, we've got to see tourism as a big economic opportunity for uh, British Columbia. But the, uh, the environment that is the big attraction that we're touting it uh, is is under threat. I mean, you could see it there. And uh, so it, the, the thing is that the, uh, the MC said, um, well, is there anyone from the media come up and uh, ask a question? And nobody did. So it was just I mean, this opportunity. Technically, you're from up. the media as well, though, Mr. Suzuki. I mean, <laughs> well, exactly. Sorry, I don't mean I, to make light of it, but timing's everything, right? It just happened to be there and uh, the opportunity opened up. So, yeah. I felt that I uh, had the right to go there as a member of the media. The government keeps saying that they're leaders in the fight against climate change. Are they wrong? Absolutely. You know, of the G7 nations, we are the only one of the G7 nations that hasn't reduced our greenhouse gas emissions below 1990 levels. All the others have. We haven't even re uh, capped our emissions. We're 20% above our 1990 levels. And we're saying that we're leaders? How can we possibly be leaders with that kind of a record? <coughs> it's, it's really embarrassing to see what other countries are doing now in order to, to, to come to grips with this. Look at what the United States has done, even in a hostile uh, Congress. Uh, Biden has got through a multi, multi, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars committed now to doing something about climate change. I wanted to ask you, I mean, we've seen conservative premiers take the feds to court over the federal carbon tax. Is the federal government being hampered by, you know, to pursue meaningful climate change policies when premiers are willing to take them to court over it? Well, absolutely. I think this represents a problem. As long as this issue remains a political issue, you're going to get reticence on on the part of uh, everyone. I mean, we have uh, the leader of the opposition now who wants to uh, revoke the carbon tax, who does not take climate change seriously. It's a really uh, a frightening time. You know, 
If it remains a political issue, we're going to just get this back and forth. When COVID hit, look at what happened. Suddenly money started coming and I was going, where the heck is this money going, uh, coming from? During uh, all of the discussions about climate, you know, we go to Ottawa begging for a few million dollars for public transit. And the answer is always, we don't have the money. But suddenly billions of dollars are coming uh, out, of the, uh, uh, out of the need to treat uh, COVID. Um, so it shows that when it's no longer a political issue, it's treated as an emergency, the money is there. And we didn't have a uh, discussion about, no, we can't do anything about that. We can't afford to, to do anything about COVID. All the parties came together and acted the way we should when you have an emergency. And unless climate is so, treated so me, that so way... So let me just ask you this, because we're, we're running out of time, Mr. Suzuki. Let me ask you this. On that emergency question, as you said, people came together for COVID. Every politician keeps saying, or many politicians keep saying, I should say, that this is an emergency. In your mind, are they treating it like an emergency right now? Of course not. Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, has been telling us for months this is a code red for humanity, a code red. Now, uh, he then said any further investment in fossil fuel infrastructure is a moral and economic madness. Two days after that, the government approved the Bay du Nord development of uh, Newfoundland. And a week after that, uh, Christian Freeland approved of a $10 billion interest-free loan to the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline. What the heck is going on? This is moral I... and economic madness. And it continues to go on. And we try to claim that we're the leaders in the world. Let's, let's face it. Let's all get together and no longer play politics and treat it as the emergency it is. We're not doing that yet. We've got the best candidate we could ever hope for as environmentalists, as the Minister of the Environment. He's not allowed, because of politics, to say it like it is. This is an emergency, and these incremental things that we're doing, a tax increase here, an incentive there, a little park over here, those are incremental. They're not up to the emergency that we're in. No one is saying we've got to start reducing our greenhouse gas emissions very, very quickly, not net zero by 2050. Right now, we've got to start reducing. The forest fires in British Columbia are telling that we're in a drought in a rainforest here. What's going on? We've now got real problems. We need real attention. Mr. Suzuki, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for doing this. We appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Still to come, a city struggling to handle February's trucker convoy. And when Ottawa asked for help, the province said that was a job for law enforcement. Former Ottawa Police Chief Charles Bordelow joins us next. Stay right there. Welcome back. Well, Ottawa thought it could handle one weekend, but testimony from city manager Steve Kanellakis, who said it quickly spiraled out of control during the trucker convoy this weekend. But a warning came from at least one group. 
The Gatineau Hotel, Hotel Association told the mayor's office that protesters were trying to secure hotel rooms for 30 and even as many as 90 days. That information was passed on to Ottawa police and pleas for provincial help were caught in a jurisdictional web. So did a jurisdictional rigmarole stop the city from taking action in the early days of the convoy? And how crucial was that warning from Ottawa area hotels. Let's bring in our press gallery to break it all down. We have CTV's Parliamentary Bureau Chief Joyce Napier here in studio, Toronto Star's Queen's Park Bureau Chief Rob Benzi, and our special guest is the former Ottawa Police Chief Charles Bordelow. Thank you all for being here. Mr. Bordelow, we'll start with you. Steve Canalaco says that the president of the Ottawa Gatineau Hotel Association emailed the city on January 25th warning that 10,000 to 15,000 protesters were trying to secure hotel rooms for between 30 and 90 days. That seems like a pretty critical piece of intelligence there. Do you think that the city acted properly with this information? Well, Mr. Kalak has also said that this was a, a police-led event. So they were following the police's lead. They were, the police, the auto police service was in charge. This speaks to, I think, the, the, the need to look at what intelligence systems were in play and what processes were, were in play as, as far as auto police getting the right intelligence? Were they the right ones or did they obviously miss things? Because their planning assumptions were that they were only there for the weekend. But it's becoming clear now that there was more information out there, including from the Ottawa Gatineau Hotel Association, that there were plans in place to stay longer. So why didn't the auto police service act on that? What are, other information did they have and what else did they miss that led them to making the wrong planning assumptions. Can you comprehend how Ottawa police did not react to that? I think I'm waiting to hear from the Ottawa police service to see exactly, did they get that information and uh, how did they rate it? Did they assess it? Uh, was there any other information that they had at the time that contradicted that information? So I think that's all uh, information that we are going to be hearing hopefully from the Ottawa police service as to how they managed the information that they got, how did they assess it, and how did they act on it. Joyce, I come to you now. I mean, hearing that information, shocked at all? Well, you know what is shocking is what made them believe they were only there for the weekend? Uh, so we were asking, you know, why didn't they heed the information that mm -hmm. these people were uh, 10, 15, 20,000 people were uh, with huge trucks were coming to Ottawa? You want to know where did they get? They're just going to be here for the weekend and then they leave. Where did they underestimate right. so badly what was going to happen with all the warnings? And and I think Mr. Baudelot is right. I would I would like to hear what Canada's, you know, sort of uh, intelligence uh, community was telling Ottawa was telling the provincial government or whoever on, uh, you know, what were they hearing? What were they seeing on the web? What kind of messages were they, they getting? So, you know, this is a commission, so we're getting a little bit of information right. every day and we'll have to build, you know, sort of the wall or the puzzle slowly. But where did they get the idea that it was only going to be for a weekend? That's really actually a question that I'd like to hear. Who told you it was only, we're just here for five minutes, then we're going to leave with our, with our big, huge trucks and not create a horrible jam? And, I mean, one had to just be on Wellington Street to realize that they had dug in. For 10 minutes. You only needed to open your window and look at that 
and then understand what was occurring. It didn't, you didn't need three weeks. That's what I mean. We saw it. Right. We were here. We covered it. And we were seeing uh, these people. And it didn't look like they were going anywhere. Uh, and, and it was pretty clear from, from the get-go. So why did we see it? And why did Ottawa residents see it? And why didn't the authorities see it? That there were maybe too many people. You know, it's like too many cooks in the kitchen. Let's head to Queen's Park for a second here, Rob. Mr. Canalaco said that the city asked the province for help. Then Solicitor General Sylvia Jones told him that this is a matter for law enforcement, not elected officials. So what do you make of this sort of jurisdictional breakdown? Was there more the province could have done? You know what, Mike? You're right. There's a bit of uh, passing of the buck. I mean, you had this extraordinary scene today where the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, was in Canada, suburb of Ottawa, talking about uh, talking with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and praising Trudeau for using the Emergencies Act and for saying, I stood shoulder to shoulder uh, with the Prime Minister during this. And it, for sure, the, pre the Premier all along was saying these things, but then it turns out behind the scenes, his Solicitor General, who is now his Health Minister, she's no longer Solicitor General, was saying something different privately, saying, look, you know, this is a matter for the Ontario Provincial Police, and we don't direct the police. And you have to remember, Mike, there is, it's a delicate situation, as Chief Borlo would know, uh, when politicians are talking about police matters. We had a, a situation here many years ago where a, a, a protester, an Indigenous protester, was killed uh, by an OPP officer at Ipperwash, and there was a huge public inquiry into that. And so people are very, very skittish. Politicians are very skittish when it comes to being seen to be directing the police. But clearly, uh, there was a failing here on on what Joyce man mentioned about about it, uh, intelligence and an, and a failing uh, politically uh, from perhaps all three levels of government. Mr. Borlow, do you agree in the Solicitor General's assessment that it was a matter for law enforcement? Well, it's a law enforcement lead. However, it required the participation and collaboration from many levels of government. And I think what the auto police service and the city was looking for to the province is give us some tools that are going to help us bring an end to this situation. As an example, you know, there are many truckers and they all have licenses under the CDOR program. They all have insurance and that's under provincial jurisdiction. So what could they do to entice the truckers to say, we're going to suspend your licenses and your CDORs if you don't leave? So that is, that's a tool that the city and the police were looking for the province to give. However, those demands seem to have been fallen on deaf ears. So I'm looking forward to hearing somebody from the province. Doesn't need, doesn't need to be Premier Ford, but somebody from the, the Solicitor General's office to speak to, first of all, why did they enact the, the Emergencies Act in Ontario? And secondly, why didn't they provide any other types of support uh, to the auto police service and the partners here in Ottawa to bring this to an end? Joyce, very quickly, 15 or less, does that sort of speak to why we didn't hear from uh, anybody from Ontario yet and we're sort of wondering who from the government will be speaking for them? Absolutely, but I mean, I, I, I understand what Mr. Baldolo is saying and we all agree. We understand that there should not be political interference in, in policing affairs, but we want to know what were they saying. They, they don't have to interfere, but they could certainly ask their police for an assessment. Thank you, Joyce. We have to leave it there. Charles Bordalo, thank you so much for joining us. Rob Benzi, Queen's Park, really appreciate it as well. That is your day in Power Play Politics, everyone. Thanks so much for spending your time with us. We'll be right back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night.